Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome everybody to this week's installment of the Dead Pundit Society. I'm your host, Adam Proctor, as always. Joining me this week, I've got Emmett Renson. He's got an essay in the L.A. Review of Books called The Blathering Superego at the End of History. Aside from having a badass title, it's also a really excellent article. It looks into the way that liberalism is cracking up at the seams. There have been a lot of hot takes to explain the disaster of centrism in this country, but Emmett's really gets at something interesting and exciting, and you're not going to want to miss this interview. So let's get to it as soon as possible. Getting a lot of great support on my Patreon. Um, all of you by now know what Patreon is and probably know that I have one. Check me out at patreon.com slash deadpundits. You can donate at $3, $5, or $8 a month. I really appreciate all of the support I'm getting there. Um, it's going to enable me to buy new equipment, to travel, and get new hot takes and interviews to keep all of you guys entertained and informed. So I appreciate all of the support. If you like, if you're down with this political project and you want to help it, uh, help it along, feel free to check me out on Patreon.com/slash/DeadPundits, and you too can become a, uh, a supporter of the show. All right, check me out on Twitter at DeadPundits, one word at DeadPundits. You can check me out there, get all my hot takes. Uh, never stop posting. Check me out on Facebook. Search Dead Pundit Society. You'll find me there. You can follow and like the page. You'll see all of the episodes as they come out week to week and get some important updates as well. So without further ado, I'm going to bring you the interview with Emmett Renson very shortly. I've put together a quick montage to kind of uh, give you a feel for the neurotic, cracked up vibe that the liberal centrists are sort of displaying right now. I think it'll set the stage quite well. So here's about a minute montage for your listening pleasure, and then I'll bring you a 45-minute interview. So here's a little Green Day with Keith Olbermann and Rachel Maddow making cameo appearances. Enjoy. Do you have the time to listen to me whine about nothing and everything all at once? Even potential end of the world stuff. Sometimes it does happen. Sometimes it turns out to be your generation, your workplace, your country. I'd like to begin by congratulating the FBI on its successful coup against the electoral process of the United States of America. You've been working on one of these for a while, boys, and I know everybody at the Bureau is just delighted that the F can now also stand for fascist. There are doomsday plans going into action all over this country right now. It's the brink of nuclear war. It's like worth a shot, right? If all else fails, why, why not try that? The terrorists have won. In five weeks' time, unless desperate measures are taken, we will hand over the government to a man who lost the popular vote by more than Woodrow Wilson or Jimmy Carter won it. A man whom the Russians wanted to run our country for them. A man whom the Russians got to run our country for them. A man for whom the Russians interfered with our elections.
Welcome back to the show. Joining me today is Emmett Renson, who is an essayist, a contributing editor for the Los Angeles Review of Books. You can also find his work in places like The Atlantic, The New Republic, and Jacobin Magazine. Emmett, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? I'm hanging in there, man. Uh, brought you on the show because I want to talk about your piece that just landed in the LA Review of Books. It's called The Blathering Superego at the End of History. Uh, it's an assessment of the way that liberalism is uh, in a serious phase of decline, uh, and it's, it's really sort of dysfunctional. But this John Ossoff stuff is pretty fortuitous for your thesis. What's your, give me a quick hot take on that. What's your thought? On uh, Ossoff, um, you know, uh, predictably, he took a stack of DCCC money and set it on fire. But uh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, weirdly of all pundits in the world, I actually, and maybe this is a sign of the times, I thought Matt Iglesias actually had the, basically the right take on it. Maddie, Maddie just killed yeah. it. Like, what, where the hell did that come from? I, I had just yeah. written him off, you know? Yeah, well, I think Matt just put something out. I don't remember exactly the headline, but basically the gist of it was, uh, you know, maybe the Democrats could try running on a good platform for once. Yeah. And and his and his analysis, which I think is right, and it's something I hadn't even thought about, which is that one of the consequences, you know, even if you run on policies that don't poll super well, you know, say you you know you're in a heavily Republican district, so single payer healthcare probably isn't going to poll super high. It's still probably to your advantage to be talking about that because some people will come around than it is to talk about nothing. Because if you talk about nothing, all the dumb bullshit about Ossoff, so like he lived out of the district, he, I don't know, I'm sure he said something stupid at some point. You know, that kind of nonsense will just dominate a campaign that isn't about anything. Right. Um, and I think he pointed out that, you know, like, for example, in the UK, if Corbyn hadn't run on a, in a really strong platform, the whole campaign would have been about – how there was a file on him in the IRA 30 years ago and he said something about, you know, Hamas that people don't, you know, that, that's the sort of stuff that fills the vacuum. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, this piece by Matt Iglesias was on Vox a couple of days ago. It's called John Ossoff's Georgia Special Election Loss Shows Democrats Could Use a Substantive Agenda. And that's coming from the lanyard dicks over at Vox, right? <laughs> like, well, well, you know, as a, as a former employee of Vox.com, I have nothing but, but positive things to say about all of the individuals who I, I genuinely enjoyed working with. No doubt. I'm sure I would love having a beer with any of them, but they certainly yeah. represent a certain uh, kind of, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have my ideological disagreements with what I think is taken to be sort of the mainstream of Vox's um, politics. Uh, certainly Matt, Matt and I, in particular, have disagreed and, and very publicly uh, mm -hmm. and recently. So, yeah, I, no, I'm I'm always uh, surprised when when someone comes around. I, that's been happening all over the place, and I don't know how to be how cynical to be about it. I, I guess it's the the logical extension of you know I've been spending years saying that a lot of these liberal writers really don't have any worldview beyond consensus. Mm -hmm. So I guess it makes sense that if there's sort of a resurgent left or even in a very small and ultimately trivial sense like a media ecosystem that rewards left-wing writers with attention that some of these people are going to start drifting left sort of organically right it's bizarre on the one hand you have matt iglesias drifting left and you have keith ellison drifting to the right uh, keith ellison was caught on video actually with his podcast high-fiving uh center for american progress head nira tandon uh, saying that she kills slays fights them every single day. 
uh, first of all, pandering to the youths in a way that was really uncomfortable and just fucking hard to watch. But but second of all, like high fiving the woman who was like single handedly responsible, perhaps for staging uh, the sort of coup inside the DNC that prevented Ellison from becoming chair. Yeah, I mean, I you know who, who the hell knows? Like I'm, you know, like any of us, not really privy to those conversations or how any of that works. Right, right. Um, I, I think, you know, it, it, as much as, you know, I like Keith Ellison fine relative to some of the alternatives. And frankly, while again, near Tand and I have also disagreed and very publicly and sometimes <laughs> not in the most civil or, or professional way possible. Also, look, I mean, you know, the stuff that cap advocates for is it's fine. Um, and yeah, I mean, their latest policy think, agenda is not so bad. I mean, it, yeah, I think, I think their jobs guarantee stuff is interesting. Uh, it's not my preference, but it's it's interesting. And it, but yeah, I mean, I think anyone is sort of foolish to like just assume that basically fine actors at sort of the highest and most elite levels of the Democratic Party are not ultimately you know members of what I think a, a more uh, paranoid twentieth century Marxist would call class conspiracy. Uh, I mean, of course they're going to you know. It reminds me of I think it was during the presidential election. I think it was uh, so Trump's daughter Tiffany, the the Trump daughter you never see. Yeah, the wannabe pop star. Yeah. Yeah, she was graduating from somewhere. I think Princeton. It was an Ivy League. I think it was Princeton. I think she and she came out of Penn University of Pennsylvania. Or maybe it was Penn. Okay, it was Penn. One of the, yeah, it was it was an it was a very expensive East Coast school. It starts with a P. Right. It was one of those two. <laughs> Um, and I think like Biden's grandchild or someone like that, or maybe Tim Kaine's was also graduating some, some Democrat who I associate with the word vice president. And, uh, you know, there was just a very nice little pageant of the American elite reproducing itself as they put aside their differences and went to attend the, the graduations of their descendants into the, you know, the same aristocracy that they now run. So, you know, at a certain level, yeah, everyone's going to high five and it'll be, that'll be how it goes. Right, right. So let's talk more specifically about John Ossoff, because I think his campaign, the way that he ran it, was really revelatory in terms of the kind of thesis that you're putting forth in the article that I want to get to very soon. So for fo- for I don't know, if, if you don't know, if the name John Ossoff doesn't mean anything to you, or even if it does and you're kind of confused, just, just Google the guy. Go on YouTube and watch a couple of his campaign videos, his commercials. They are atrocious. So tell us a little bit about Ossoff's agenda or lack thereof and, and, and what he was trying to do there. Well, you know, what's remarkable, and maybe this speaks to what Ossoff is like, is that I, I think I followed that election pretty closely, but put on the spot, I really can think of nothing specific right. to say about I mean, that's, that's damning I, enough in and in yeah. itself, yeah. yeah. I think his campaign was, I'm not, you know, I'm not Trump. I'm just, I mean, it's it's that guy that they just brought, trotted out as the alternative to Paul Ryan up in Wisconsin was like the parody version of Ossoff that just, I'm a, I'm a regular guy and... And I'm not the guy you don't like. And then, you you know, you have those fundraising emails going out that are all like, you know, Emmett, J- Ossoff is he's being slowly eaten by cats. Will you will you <laughs> donate $50 to, to get them some catnip so that he doesn't die? Why don't you want him to you know be saved from these cats? It, it, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I don't as far as I can tell, he didn't have an agenda. I remember watching one of his videos 
where he was like standing right in front of the camera looking right at you, but he just tweets. He tweets, yes. Like, He's tweeting the, the entire time. It's, un- um, it's unbelievable. And at the end, you know, it's to the effect of like, at least I'm not Trump. I mean, literally, that the last tweet that you see, there's no talking whatsoever. The last tweet is like, you know, at least I'm not Trump. Um, so they trot out this googly-eyed wannabe tech bro. Uh, who talks about bringing innovation and entrepreneurialism, uh, you know, to the state, and it didn't. It didn't sell, and he he ended up, uh, you know, performing more poorly uh, than Clinton did in that district. Of course, Trump took the de- the district by a narrow margin in 2016, but but even as bad as Trump has been, Asaf did worse uh, than Clinton yeah. did in 2016. And so what you get there is a, a series of hot takes from the dead pundits around the world uh, saying, well, wait a second, you, you were just championing uh, Jeremy Corbyn for losing, and now John Ossoff loses, and suddenly that's different. So what's your take there? Oh, yeah, I was talking to somebody about that. The other, I mean, look, on some level, the kind of people who are rendering those takes know they're being willfully dishonest. You know, they know it's in bad. They know everyone fucking knows the, the difference. There's no person who looks at it and goes, you know, Jeremy Corbyn uh, was meant to be destroyed. He was, you know, opposed by the members of his own party who tried to coup him. Uh, and then he went on to, first of all, like, you know, forcing a hung parliament isn't just a moral victory. Like, yes, Corbyn didn't like out and out win. He doesn't right. command a majority in parliament. But like forcing a hung parliament is a real political change. So he yeah, did it's, actually It's a parliamentary system. It's not a winner take yeah. all, you know, two party kind of deal. It's a very different system. You can't compare the Yeah. Two. Yeah, but two, you know, he's thoroughly ensconced as leader of the opposition. He has an enormous amount of power in parliament. He is secure in the leadership. I mean, if Joe Ossoff losing meant that he was now had Nancy Pelosi's job and he was, you know, minority leader in the House of Representatives, they might be comparable. But also, you know, Corbyn also, like, I don't know what the turnout numbers were in Georgia. I didn't I didn't look. Um, But I I have to assume that they weren't, you know, exceptional or anything. You know, if, if nothing else, Corbyn turned out an enormous number of voters. Yeah. He's, he's the I mean, the real accomplishment there that people have talked about a little bit is, you know, every left wing candidate, even not necessarily left wing, but just kind of dissident candidate. Their shtick is always, you know, well, the polls that show that my ideas are not really popular with the electorate don't matter because, you know, the vast majority of you know non-voters are probably more open to them and more sort of downtrodden and probably therefore more left wing in their hearts. And Corbyn was the first guy who seems to have just actually done it. Like he actually brought those people out. Uh, so I think there are a lot of very encouraging signs there. And you also got to think about relative position, right? The left uh, in the U.S. and Britain loses all the time. No one currently working as like a left-wing organizer was alive the last time the left really fucking won anything. Um, so look – Getting within a for that getting within a hair's breadth of the premiership of a core Western capitalist democracy is a huge deal. You know, it doesn't happen overnight. It's I think you know I think there'll be another election in Britain within a year, and Corbyn will be prime minister. But either way, it's a huge step forward. Whereas, you know, the party that wins roughly half the time in the United States puts forward a pretty generic candidate in what should be favorable circumstances, and they lose. That doesn't really tell me anything. I mean, you can tell any story you want. You could just say, look, Ossoff was never going to win because the district has been a GOP district for 40 years and it's been gerrymandered since then. And so it doesn't really say anything that he lost. And fine, maybe it doesn't say anything that he lost, but it doesn't also. I don't know. I I just think like the Ossoff thing is such a small blip with so many sort of compounding 
factors where you could spin a story anyway about it that in except for the fact that it's a special election that was basically held in isolation and a ton of money went into it no one would be trying to impute this much like meaning into this race right i mean you have all like i said all the dead pundits rallying and you have sally albright who's saying you know this doesn't show we that we need to move further left you know you stupid bernie bros it shows that we need to move further to the right uh, so I think the takeaway here is not so much, you know, as you rightly point out, the X's and O's of the the loss for Asaf, or, you know, the, we could explain that away in a hundred different ways. But the takeaway is the reaction that we're getting from the elite liberal establishment about what this means and what it doesn't mean and how they're interpreting it. Uh, for one, you know, John Ossoff's uh, tearful conciliatory sort of remarks to his supporters or something to the effect of, you know, don't give up hope. This is just the beginning of a movement. You know, and I want, you know, my, my initial response, what movement? Yeah, the what, movement what, for what? For what? You know, and, you know, it's, it's one thing to say Corbyn fell just barely short and he didn't pull any punches. He went for the most progressive, the most explicitly out in the open socialist platform in labor, you know, history in a long time. And he fell just short. Now, that's building towards something. But John Ossoff is just this milquetoast, wishy-washy, technocratic centrist. I mean, what is he building towards? I think that's you know, a, a good segue to your article uh, because it gets to the heart of why liberalism has sort of run aground right now. And just to say, you know, the piece is really well written. I mean, it's, it's, fanta- it's a fantastic read if you haven't come across it yet. It really has a kind of Adam Curtis vibe to it. I imagine Adam Curtis, the uh, director of uh, hypernormalization, reading it in his eloquent British accent, you know, in the first paragraph. You open and you say, liberalism is not working. Something deep within the mechanism has cracked. All our wonk managers, our expert stewards of the world have lost their way. So take us up from there. So one of the things I was trying to approach with this piece is sort of in the aftermath of, of Trump's inauguration was to resolve a number of questions that had really only been answered in what seemed like kind of petty and individual terms. Uh, first, first and foremost, we're just like one, why are like sort of liberal elites and high level pundits and democratic party operatives, why do they seem to be going like a little crazy? Um, and, and beyond just the amount of a little crazy of you just lost an election, right? I, cause I remember when, you know, Bush won and was reelected and that, this is different. They're um, cracking up. They're cracking at the seams. Yeah, yeah, there's like a crack up that's weird and, and, it, and it manifests in weird ways, right? I mean, one of the things I talk about is just on a sort of superficial television level, that Rachel Maddow thing with the tax returns was nuts. I mean, it was really like a like a Al Capone's vault thing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you got these Keith Olbermann like literally in the swaddled by the American flag, like on the floor, like a child in these promotional videos. And, you know, you've got your you've got members of Congress who, you know, will go out and, and, you know, talk about how this isn't normal and they're the resistance and then just kind of confirm all the appointments. But so something like that is cracking up. And, and as much as the, the sort of liberals and Democrats seem to really hate Trump, they also like clearly hate the left. And, and on a discourse level, it's like usually way more personal and vitriolic, the extent to which they hate the left. Uh, and it's something I've gotten at before. And, and with some people, I think it's pretty explicable, like. I mean, with someone like, say, John Chait, who I always envision as sort of the the er pundit of this kind of liberalism. Uh, it's just that, like, look, the Republicans have power, so they're worthy debating partners and the left are just, you know, irritable children. But but I wanted to kind of go beyond that, because when we started looking at the UK, like, why is it the case that given that so many liberals insist that the problem with the left isn't that they don't like 
some ideas like universal health care. It's just that they, um, you know, it's not practical. It can't win an election. Mm-hmm. You know, so why is it that when they're confronted with, you know, Corbyn doing quite well in the UK or Sanders doing quite well in the United States or, you know, even in France where, yeah, the like technocrat shithead won, but, you know, the, the initial round with four candidates is only decided by, you know, like one or two percent, you know, the, the runoff is fairly arbitrary. Um, why are they so resistant to that and seem to be like personally embittered by having to confront that or just by, you know, young people being rude to them online? Um, they really don't like to be attacked by the, uh, from their left. And we saw yeah. that during the primaries last year. It's, it's disastrous, uh, for the kind of aesthetic there's this rat, this pseudo radical aesthetic that cloaks their technocratic centrist, uh, you know, uh, platform. Yeah, well, and, and frankly, some of them, like, I don't think it's that they're even being that malicious, right? I think you have a lot of people who really do believe they're the left wing of American politics. And so when they say, like, you know, that, that the people coming after them are just doing it either, I don't know, to be cool online or because they hate all women or something, you know, that that's really what they believe is the only possible explanation because they just don't believe that anyone's really further to the left than they are. But but I was trying to figure out why that was going on, and I guess sort of the, the conclusion that I came to that I then use a bunch of Freud to talk about in a way that people seem to be taken, I think, a little bit too seriously, but is is basically that, you know, the sort of technocratic liberalism of one form or another has controlled the world basically since, you know, the New Deal in the United States and since the end of World War II in Western Europe and then, you know, since the fall of the Soviet Union everywhere, sort of in the industrialized world. Um, And especially, you know, in the United States and in Europe. And, you know, the inception of that, so like FDR's sort of liberalism, was, you know, the project to save capitalism from itself. And, you know, have the the kinder capitalism, the the capitalism that gets you your welfare states in Europe, where you really think you there might be a communist revolution. So you buy people off with with a welfare state. And that it worked really well for a while. I mean, I, I, I try not to make, while my politics are what they are, I try not to make like moral judgments about history. I think at the time, you know, that, you know, I'm a materialist. That's what rose up. It, perhaps it was inevitable that that rose up. And it did a good job for a while of doing a number of things, you know, stabilized Western economies. It sort of provided a higher standard of living for people living in those economies for the most part. Uh, you know, all the stuff that like liberals will point to is like the progress. That's all like basically true. I mean, they don't like to acknowledge the sort of cost in blood of all of that and the fact that you needed a sort of global military empire to prop it up. But that was the world order that that emerged. And it's been sort of fallen apart, um, I think, slowly at first. And I think you could argue like because, you know, for a while, really, it was consensus, even in the United States. Right. I mean, you know, you, like Eisenhower is a is a new dealer and. You know, you get Nixon coming up saying we're all Keynesians now. It's not really until the conservative movement starts to take off in the late 70s and early 80s that the first cracks start. And I think it's been sort of accelerating since then. And we've now got to a point where it at least looks like a combination of sort of a pan-European and American kind of resurgent nationalist right-wing movement and a sort of resurgent left-wing movement is starting to like knock this kind of technocratic liberalism off its stilts. And I don't think they're, it's like going to fall over tomorrow. I think it's going to cling on, you know, potentially for a, a while, for decades even, but we're starting to see the cracks and starting to see, you know, the kind of totalizing, you know, Thatcherite, there is no alternative world order 
show alternatives, both good and bad, through through the armor. And what I wrote about in the piece, basically, is that once you start conceiving of sort of liberal technocracy, and I mean that pretty broadly, like from like liberal Democrats through like moderate Republicans, the sort of governing consensus of the late 20th century, uh, once that gets removed from being a faction that's vying for power and becomes basically like the managerial ideology of the entire West, it stops functioning like, like a political faction that's trying to win a battle for power with another faction and becomes management. It becomes a thing that's job isn't to change the world. It's to say, look, the world's working basically fine. I mean, we can make tweaks here and there and what tweaks those are going to be kind of vary by country and circumstance. And I guess they're what you'd call reformist reforms. But, but the idea is to like only do what you need to do to keep the machine running. And I think the machine's starting to break. And when that starts to happen, the thing that I end up referring to as the blathering superego starts to go a little haywire. That's right. I want to get to that in just a second. But, you know, this this really ties well with one of my more popular interviews and one of my personal favorites uh, with Angela Nagel. Uh, Nagel is known for her critique and her her sort of assessment of the alt-right and 4chan culture and all that kind of stuff. But she really has a much more robust analysis that she unfortunately she gets pigeonholed into this alt-right thing. But her over, her yeah. more overarching criticism is that liberalism, uh, particular American liberalism is in decline because it no longer is able uh, to make arguments in favor of itself, strong, potent, uh, believable arguments. Um, it's become decadent. It believes that it's the, uh, you know, it believes the end of history thesis that you sort of point to in your, in your piece. And so I think your, your use of the superego is really instructive. Um, it's an instructive way of understanding what Nagel, Angela Nagel is kind of getting at there. You mentioned, you say the super, the super ego can only do one thing. Correct. It's this processing machine, right? You, you write possibility goes in, correction comes out. And you talk about the end of history suggesting a perfect, perfectly healthy mind. We just need a few minor tweaks here and there. So t- let's talk about your appropriation of this superego term um, and, and how that works for you. Sure. I mean, when I was doing this, I was basically looking for a metaphor I thought most people were basically familiar with that would explain what I meant by – because you can imagine the – Part of it, to be honest, is – and this is maybe a greater beef with like sort of the – with what you're calling the dead pundits of the world than anything else is that I want writing to be fun and I'd like it to be readable and entertaining. And and, and so look, I'm looking for something fun that also serves as a good metaphor here because if I just wrote the piece and I say like, you know, the world order of managerial liberalism, which has for 70 years assumed itself to be the, the governing ideology. We're like, I basically say all that, but it gets a little dry really fast. Yeah, that's how I would write it. I, I love the piece, but I also hated it because it made me realize how much of an academic writer I am. So, you know, but but uh, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. It was a fun read. Um, yeah. So the super right. I think most I mean, I don't know most people, most people who are going to read a 4000 word essay about politics are familiar with. You know, there's this basic Freudian, you know, division of the of the conscious and subconscious into the, the ego and the superego. And, you know, that's about as far as I'm taking the metaphors. You know, we, we all understand that the superego is this thing in Freud where, you know, you have the id, which are your sort of, you know, subconscious, you know, desires and drives. And you have the ego that is your sort of conscious thinking mind, decision making mind. And that the superego, which I mean, in German is just literally the super eye, just the, the you know the big eye. Right. Um, that its job essentially is that over time, you know, as it develops, 
it absorbs all of the sort of social conventions you're supposed to adhere to, right? They don't really, it doesn't come from inside of your head. It's like, you know, it's, I think in the piece I call it a fully automated priest. Yes. So you basically just get a, yeah. you get a priest inside of your head. Yeah, it's a sensorious and, machine that you, you refer yeah, to. Yeah, right. And what it does is if you get too close to, to doing something bad or you do it, um, you know, the superego, it doesn't say take you by the shoulder and go, hey, buddy, you know, I know you're thinking about smoking this dope, but you got a lot to live. Like, it doesn't do that. It just inflicts a psychic wound. It says, no, that's wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you should feel bad. It, I mean, it inflicts shame is the idea. And I, and I think like when I mean, you're talking about Angela Nagel, I think she's right. Right. Liberalism's sort of. Yeah, I like the term decadence for it. Its role in this kind of manager position is. Yeah, never to really make positive arguments for itself, just to correct other arguments as kind of idish or irresponsible or childish or impractical. And that's why every goddamn liberal take in the world is like, well, this person thinks this, but we ran the numbers and whatever. And and, and they'll, you know, they roll their eyes because I've been writing critiques of this forever. And in a certain way, sort of my career was made by by writing critiques of this. And and I know that the sort of like wonk technocrats who, who don't like me just kind of roll their eyes at it as if like what I'm saying is science is bad. Um, uh, yeah. So you're anti-data, which means you're anti-science and you, you're the, ne- the next step is, you know, fake news, right? Well, right. These are the same people who will say stuff like, you know, uh, you know, I only use, you know, facts and science and reason. And, and, and keep in mind, these are people who say science and reason as if they were complementary things and not opposite sides of a thousand year old philosophical feud. But <laughs> that like that, aside, like sure. I, I only like to point things out occasionally because, you know, I, I like to not have it get to me. But occasionally these people roll their eyes at me and I'm like, I, you know, I went to school, too. I'm not actually an idiot. I just don't. I'm not super impressed by charts, uh, but, but yeah, so it does, it corrects, it censors, it corrects, it, you know, assumes a sort of narrow constraint of possibility about the world and then talks about like what, what sort of modes would be best for bringing those about or producing them or sort of limiting damage limitation, risk management in a certain level, like liberalism becomes indistinguishable from like management consultancy yeah, yeah. and a lot of the same thought processes. And yeah, I don't know that they make positive arguments for themselves. I mean, sometimes I think it seems like they do, but there's sort of two forms of that. One is the really limited positive argument, which is something like, hey, the ACA is good. I mean, 20 million people got health insurance. We did that, which is nice. I mean, it's good. Give 20 million people some form of health insurance who didn't have it before. But it's always like, it's, I think what Mark Fisher you know, talks about, I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, capitalist realism, his yes, big, his big, big fan of Mark Fisher on this show. Yeah, we talk about him quite a bit. Right. So, you know, he talks about this, that, that at a certain point, like capitalism's self-defense isn't an argument for itself. It's an argument that it's better than the alternatives. Yeah. You know, yeah, this sucks, but it's not North Korea. You know, you don't like this, try waiting in line for bread somewhere. And, and then two, I think the other kind of way that liberalism makes arguments for itself is through sort of charisma. I mean, it's why Barack Obama is a really fascinating figure because he was actually very bad at being a champion for liberalism or getting liberals elected or even getting Democrats elected. But he's like the greatest getting himself elected person, I think, in a lifetime. Exactly. I would have said it exactly like that myself. Yeah, he's a he's a tremendous self promoter, but he was awful. I think he lost something like 900 seats in local uh, rather state elections and governor's mansions and. 
yeah, no party has lost more, which is shocking because it's not really correlated with Obama's popularity. I think if there were no term limits, Barack Obama would be president until he was dead. Yes, he would yeah. never. I think he could get reelected every four years, no problem. I'm not sure he'd have a party apparatus left in the wake. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it would just be him. He'd just yeah. <laughs> But but that's a way that liberalism, I think, makes arguments for itself, because especially you go back to 2008, I think the 2012 campaign was different and sort of fascinating in its own way, right? It's easy to make fun of now that it was just like kind of vacuous bullshit, but it, it did seem like it was attaching this sort of charismatic, almost evangelical fervor to liberalism. And I think in his case it was accomplished by way of not really ever actually defending liberalism per se, like any of the policy. Um, just by saying, you know, good, nice, we're nicer, we're better, we hope for things, we're going to change things, we're going to do stuff, like, and especially in a world where, like, there's not much else going on in terms of possibility on the left, I think even the empty rhetoric is more appealing than, than you know, the, the alternative. I mean, weirdly, I think it works in the same way that Trump worked with, with sort of Rust Belt. I mean, I hate to invoke the specter of the white working class who, yes, I know we're not like the core of Trump's coalition, but certainly contributed to it. You know, people will point out all day long that Trump's populism is phony and it is, it's, it's a scam. But if there's no one else saying that kind of thing on offer at all, some people are going to take the bullshit version over nothing. And I think there's a weird parallel to that with Obama, where if there's no other left option, yeah, the nice, the nice like hope and change bullshit sounds Sounds nice. And the world's changed a lot since then. I mean, I was I was 18 years old in, in during the 2008 election. And, uh, you know, I, I think I voted for I, yeah, I voted for Obama in the California primary in 2008. It was my first vote for anything. And I think there's something really sort of hopeful about the fact that in the eight years between then and then the 2016 primaries that, you know, my generation of like 18, 19, 20 year olds defected from Hillary Clinton in favor of a more charismatic but not substantially different candidate. Right. And, you know, then eight years later, the new cohort of, of the youth defected from Hillary Clinton for a totally uncharismatic old weirdo from Vermont that they'd never heard of on the basis of superior policy positions. Uh, I think that's good. I think the bullshit works until there's until there's the real deal. I don't think you could be Obama now because there is a more credible left. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go back. Let's let's backtrack a little bit because I like the allegory that you raise here. Uh, you said the 2016 presidential election was meant to be the final victory of the wonk managers, the triumph of a West Wing fantasy, wherein the leadership class didn't quite do anything beyond displaying the sublime confidence of cerebral people hurrying down the hallways of power with matters well in hand. So Donald Trump should have been a perfect foe. He's this blethering idiot. You know, uh, he, he represents the forces of stupidity and reaction starkly manifested and these should have been quite easily dispatched you right uh paraphrasing there uh but so let's talk about that west wing fantasy because i grew up you know in college i'm a few years older than you and i grew up watching dvds obsessively in college of the west wing i came to it a little bit late i suppose because i'm a little young for it to catch it live in the 90s but what do you think you know jed bartlett for those who are familiar and toby and uh, cj and the gang you know represent the kind of cere uh, cerebral approach uh, the thoughtful managerial but morally grounded you know always wanting to do the right thing even if they have to hold their nose and do the wrong thing you know in the short run yeah I mean, I don't know. The West Wing, look, I, I watched all the West Wing when I was younger, and I think at least while Sorkin is still 
you know, writing the show. It's a really, it's a well-written television show. The dialogue's snappy. It's yeah. dramatic. It's, you know, I don't have any problem with that. I do have a problem with what I sometimes call radical Sorkinism, where you become like a devotee of like the divine truth of that vision of the world and try to impose it in reality. No, one of the things I'm sort of paraphrasing in there that I thought was great was, I don't know if you know uh, Luke Savage, the writer, yeah. but he had, a, he had a piece in Current Affairs a couple months ago about the West Wing. In which he did all the sort of the normal takedown stuff of the West Wing that I've heard before. Um, actually, weirdly, if you if you want to find something incredible, you can find a really old Ezra Klein essay that's really anti the West Wing that says it's like too conciliatory and nice. That was written like before Ezra was Ezra, but it's great. Uh, it's online somewhere. Ezra uh, Klein, uh, head editor of Vox, I think, among other things. Yeah. yeah, but 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 something Luke pointed out that I hadn't really thought about before was what's really incredible about the West Wing is that they don't accomplish anything. They never do anything that even in the, I think the way he puts it is that, you know, even in their wildest fantasies, liberals don't do anything. Um, right. You know, later in the show when Sorkin's gone and stuff, you get like, um, you know, they like somehow solve Israel Palestine by having like the hot blonde national security advisor, like hit on Yasser Arafat or so it's like completely <laughs> it becomes completely ridiculous. And they like save social security, like the show goes totally off the rails in the end. But yeah, they don't do much. And I think what I guess what I was saying in the essay about 2016 was Clinton really had like, in a way that even Obama didn't totally dispatched with any vision of democratic leadership that wasn't just sort of competence. Because uh, I went, you know, Obama, say what you will about how he actually governed, right? You had that 2008 stuff we were talking about a minute ago. But you also, in 2012, had really, I mean, very swell done, the kind of class war rhetoric in his advertising. Um, you know, there was a great, you know, you look at the like Hillary Clinton, like Venn diagram of intersectionality and wonder how that didn't do as well as these like really good Obama ads where you... You know, it's like a shuttered factory and the smokestacks are closed and the camera pans to the gate that's you've got a big padlock on it. And there's a square sign on the gate that's, you know, where you expect the like, you know, closed don't enter sign to be. And it's the and it's the New York Times, you know, let Detroit go bankrupt, you know, says Mitt Romney. Like that's a that's great agitprop. I mean, as it turned out, Obama wasn't like super interested in the sort of politics that follow from that. But right. I mean, it's kind of first time tragedy, second time is farce, right? And the the the, the illusion there that Marx was using, I think, in the Civil War in France, if I'm not mistaken, he's writing about Napoleon being the first time he's the tragedy, and the farce was you know Napoleon's uh, whatever nep- great nephew or whatever it was that sort yeah, of Napoleon tried to take on the cloak of Napoleon, but he was really just a fraud and a sham and lacked all of the virtues that the well, right. Napoleon had originally had. And that's a, a really nice allegory comparing Obama uh, to Clinton. Of course, he himself was a tragedy insofar as he didn't do anything to help those shuttered up factories in Detroit. Uh, but by the time Clinton tries to run with that narrative, it's just, no, it's just totally um, devoid of, of even the, the, you know, the feigned um, you know, sincerity that Obama had. Right. Right. There's a weird thing that emerges, you know, because I covered the Democratic National Convention uh, back in last summer uh, for a couple of places. And I did I did a story for New Republic that I think they ended up calling What does the Democratic Party want? Something like that. And it was sort of remarkable. I mean, I spent days and days at this convention. I talked to a whole bunch of delegates there and I saw all the big speeches and I really couldn't have told you what the Democratic Party stood for. And what I ended up writing was that there's sort of two ways to understand that. One is the sort of cynical way, which is they don't stand for anything. But the other way to understand it is they stand for everything. They stand for whatever the hell you want them to be. 
like, you know, because you could find, you ask people, like, what are the Democrats? stand for and they'll be like oh you know like a better better future for all of us and like tolerance and progress and yeah whatever the hell you want you wanted hillary clinton to be for you, you you could write that story i mean i remember there was a moment i don't remember her exact wording but, but she's given her her acceptance speech and i was in the hall for it and i'm sort of kind of passively taking notes but i'm also trying to like you know get something done i'm trying to like get you know i'm trying i'm like i gotta file the story soon but i'm you know i'm listening and i hear her say something like um you know, some of you feel like you don't know me and, uh, you know, she's going to explain, you know, what it is that she stands for. And I kind of perk up. I think, okay, yeah, you know, here it is. Uh, we're going to hear it. I'm like, I'm like, okay, great. I'll, I'll, uh, you know, oh, she says, uh, oh yeah. She says, some people don't know what to make of me. Let me tell you. But what followed that was like, you, you know, those ads they have for candidates. That's just like the highlights of their autobiography. It was like that. Like, let me tell you, you know, I was born in Illinois and I did this and, you know, I fought for women and children and I, but it was like total, like it sounded like the voiceover of a sort of nice get to know the candidate ad. Jesus, It's like a Phil Hartman character on an early Simpsons episode, you know, like, you know, that, that, that guy who's running for president very in a very disingenuous sort of way. Yeah. I mean, weirdly, like, I mean, obviously, you know, rather have Clinton than Trump, but at least with Trump. It was very clear who Trump was there for and who he wasn't there for. You know, Trump gets up. I'm, you know, are you a, a white, disaffected uh, member of the middle class? I'm here for you. Are you Latino? Fuck off. Are you gay? Fuck off. Like that was it's crystal clear. You know, if you went and asked someone, what does Trump stand for? If he was going to make America great again and or at least the part of America he wanted to make great again with Clinton, eh, could be anyone you wanted. So, so the whole campaign ended up becoming this referendum on competence. And I think they thought they had a winning hand there because on some basic level, you'd think most people would say, yeah, you know, I'd rather have somebody who's not an idiot running this. And maybe they, they're vindicated in that on a popular vote level, but it, it should have been uh, easier, as you were saying before, to beat Trump. It, it sh- like, even if, and I'm washy on the Russia stuff, but even if it turned out that like the whole margin in like Wisconsin and Michigan was like directly attributable to, you know, Putin cackling and sending like disinformation out. Even if that were true, you still have to basically believe that like a really elaborate Russian psyops campaign is like easier to come by than 20,000 votes in a democratic state. And it's like, at some level that shouldn't be making the margin because it's not as if by the way, you know, cause I, I, to be clear, I totally believe the Russians fuck with our elections. I think we fuck with their. I think this is like a great tradition amongst uh, rival powers. Sure. That's what but, but, you know, Ob- Obama somehow managed to win big landslides both times anyway. Um, yeah, but so but the competent stuff didn't didn't work. And I think that threw the door open for a number of things, because I do think had Clinton won and won like commandingly, they would have had a pretty strong case to say, look, the 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 Bernie bros on the left tried to stop us and the. And the racists on the right tried to stop us. And by the way, they're really the same thing. Uh, but, you know, we but we beat them all. Horseshoe and now theory. we're gonna... hashtag horseshoe theory. Yeah, yeah God. But so let's talk. Let's take after the election where the, the, the liberal pundits and the liberal elites are really cracking up here. And you capture the reason really well. You write managerial liberalism is doing what any super ego must under severe stress continue against all hope to concert to assert control. And so there's this just this zombie like, you know, way that they're just continuing on feeding on the brains of the living. What's going to stop this? And what do you what what do we do next? I mean, this is the big this is sort of the big uh, what's to be done question. But we can sort of uh, finish with this. What's your take on that? 
Yeah, well, I think there's sort of a lot of possibilities. And again, I don't think liberalism's in the trash today. I think they've got a number of fights in them. They've got control of France, of Germany. I mean, they've still really basically got control of the United States and Britain. Um, but Canada, assuming, Canada for sure. yeah, Canada, certainly. But assuming that the, the decline continues, uh, the trend, you know, that the sort of more resurgent left wing movements either end up taking control of left wing party, you know, notionally left wing parties in these countries or just growing on its own and that the right gets sort of more insane and nativist or you know, continues on as is. Uh, I mean, I think there, you know, there's there's an opening there. Uh, someone, you know, on a really broad sort of historical level you know, when, when one world order collapses, another world order has to rise up. And I do think that like sort of the trap and I, and I, and I don't, I'm not a pessimist on the left. I think I'm a little bit more pessimistic than some people, but I do think that one of the tragedies of sort of the cold war and the period after it was, there was such a concerted effort, especially in the United States to just destroy the left, right? Just explicit bipartisan cooperation, you know, going all the way back to like, Truman really being the first president to sort of support McCarthyism and, you know, through the 60s and sort of totally undermining the labor movement and like weakening them and getting like crappy leaders in them. So they were weak enough that Reagan could sweep in and destroy them in the 80s. Is that like the right is just way stronger than the left is in this country? I mean, that's why Donald Trump is president and not, you know, Nina Turner or someone. And, and I think people on the left and, and I, there are other people saying this, too, like, do you need to be while hopeful and optimistic and I think joyous about sort of the progress we're seeing, I think joy is really essential in politics and it's just poison if everything has to be like deadly serious and unfun all of the time. We got to be realistic that there's no just skip to win. It's not like, you know, if we post more memes, then some, somehow like we'll dislodge not only like the most powerful entrenched ideology in the history of the world from power and fend off the like arguably more powerful right wing um, so there's a lot. And I mean, I wish I could tell you if I, if I had the, the master plan for how the left, you know, genuinely organizes, you know, a million member, or 2 million or 10 million member movement in the United States and seizes power, then I would be, you know, director, I'd be president of the left right now. I wouldn't be <laughs> writing essays about Freud and the LA review of books, but, um, I don't know. I, I, I think assuming that this all kind of keeps going the way that it's going, I, I'd like to believe that the people who are smart enough and know how to do the work and, and really do want to organize, you know, off just sort of personality feuds on the Internet and like sort of moral victories to like real concrete victory, um, that those people will emerge, that they'll hopefully prevail. And that, you know, it, that in the end, like if on some level the world or at least democratic countries have to kind of decide collectively what they want for themselves, that in, you know, in the end people will decide that they, they want to be decent to each other and they want to feed and clothe each other and give each other homes more than they want to kill each other. Um, maybe that's a naive thing to believe, but I think, you know, if the left is sort of going to overcome the right, that's, I have to have that faith in people's fundamental inclinations. Right. I think we've been granted a temporary reprieve under the com total ineptitude of, of the Trump uh, regime here. I mean, we, we expected they would sweep into power. You have a really great line about that in the opening. You say, uh, first, the president was a fascist until he failed to consolidate power. Then he was an authoritarian until he showed no interest in micro or macro management. Then he merely had an authoritarian tendencies or something 
And at any rate, he was probably a Kremlin agent. So we've been granted this temporary reprieve. I see now that the far right, the rise of the far right is a little less uh, you know, scary right now. It seems that the 4chan anime porn Nazis are now beefing with the Oath Keepers and like Oath Keeper Keepers are kicking proud boys out of their events. And so, you know, the, the, yeah. not only is the, the liberal uh, center, you know, cracking up, but it seems like the far right's cracking up as well. And so this is a really great opportunity for the left to get its act together. Uh, we really need to know what we're up against, even if we don't have a sort of master plan laid out before us. Yeah, well, yeah, I think, you know, I don't know. Uh, I, think, I, I think it can happen. I mean, I think it's going to take a degree of seriousness about what it would really mean to sort of like enter working class communities, actually build up networks, like the kind of stuff that the left just isn't trained for right now because it's just trained for these Internet fights. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think, look, it, it, that's not to say there aren't great people out there. And I'm encouraged to see more and more people with real experience in like actual movement building and organizing and union stuff sort of coming into the fold of sort of the American cultural left. Um, so I'm glad to see that. And But, you know, our, our, our enemies in the end aren't going to be the like anime Nazi 4chan people because there's like 10 of them. <laughs> it's it's going to be like the real Trump, you know, the real Trump base, which is like a red faced middle aged guy who owns a Subaru dealership. Um, who already feels pretty comfortable and perhaps has spent so many years sort of being immersed in an ideology that tells you that, you know, one's one's good fortune is the, the result of either one's pure hard work on the right or mostly hard work for the liberals that, you know, doesn't necessarily want to give up what he's got for other people. And that that's really who's going to have to be overcome and probably, and I would hope through persuasion, but We'll see. I mean, wiser and, and more competent people than me, I think, will chart the course for the left's future. Well, we, we do have a lot of work to do, but you know what you're doing is certainly not nothing. I think uh, understanding what the center left uh, these these liberals are up to is, is of the utmost importance, so that we can a not be bamboozled by their nonsense and b uh, come up with uh, coherent and cohesive arguments against it. So, Emmett, thanks for joining us on the Dead Pundit Society. Uh, I learned a lot, and I hope uh, the audience did too. We look forward to talking to you again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. And that's our episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Check Emmett's work out at the LA Review of Books. I'll link to that article in the show notes if you want to read it for yourself. Joining me next week, I've got a great guest. It's Nivedita Majumdar. She is uh, a professor in New York City. She has an article in the latest issue of Catalyst. It's criticizing post-colonial theory, in particular, its wishy-washy notion of resistance. So you're not going to want to miss that. I know that's a hot topic in some socialist theoretical circles. All right. Thanks for joining us. Check me out on patreon.com slash dead pundits. Become a subscriber of the show. Check me out on Twitter at dead pundits. Find me on Facebook. Give me a follow. Like the page. Until then, enjoy your week. Try not to melt out there. It's hot. Dead pundit out. Oh, this new crazy mother...